From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story. This is a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas and I'm Emily Nicholl. I've actually done, just to say, because I hate embarrassing people, so I've done sta- station uh, recognition. And hi, this is Irish Mythen, and you're listening to because I just don't want to embarrass them. Irish Mythen has always had a love for the road. Moving as a kid from the southeast coast of Ireland to Africa and the Middle East, the sights, sounds and stories of the places inspired her. Like any good troubadour, she's since travelled extensively, gathering tales and meeting people. Irish has built a strong following on the international folk music circuit. She's opened for the likes of Melissa Etheridge and Rod Stewart and taken the stage at some of Australia's biggest festivals like Bluesfest and Woodford. Irish's powerful voice, paired with a sense of humour and knack for understanding people, instantly wins over crowds wherever she goes. And though she now calls Canada's Prince Edward Island home, her Celtic heritage is still present in her music. So Irish, welcome to the podcast. Take us back to your home country, to Ireland. I'm from Enniscorthy, County Wexford, which is on the southeast of Ireland, about two counties below Dublin, if your listeners know where Dublin is. And we tend to associate a certain lilt to all things Irish, and there's a long tradition of Celtic music uh, as well. What kind of effect did Ireland um, as a place have on you growing up? Oh, look, first and foremost, it's, it's got an incredible, uh, incredible long history, um, uh, both good and bad. Um, and, and it's in the way we talk, like Irish people sing when they talk almost, you know, depending on where they're from. Uh, you get d- down to the west of Ireland and, and a conversation, uh, reading the phone book sounds like a beautiful ballad kind of thing. But music was always around. And it was always uh, it was also our way of um, during during the English occupation when they banned uh, you know the instruments and and they banned the language as well. We we all kind of had to learn English pretty pretty quick, um, but the way of preserving the history was was uh, you know orally passing it down, and the, and the best way to do that was through song, mm-hmm. um, and and they developed uh, they developed a way because they took our instruments away, so they developed a way. Of, uh, of of singing where you would uh, you would sing the words over the top and then also you would do the nasally kind of um, uh, bass beat kind of thing to to mm. emulate music so a lot of uh, a lot of it was needs and necessity like getting getting the word out keeping keeping families alive keeping the history alive um so Ireland and still today uh, it's just surrounded surrounded by music so mm. um and Irish people love to talk. They love, absolutely love to talk. Irish people will go, you ask them one simple question and they'll tell you like 17 sentences just to say yes, you know. <laughs> so uh, so I love I love that and I, I carried that through into into my work, um, just telling stories and, and uh, because that's, that's what it's all about, you know, just mm-hmm. uh, keeping things alive. Were they teaching you Celtic at schools in your area? Because similarly to a lot of Indigenous culture mm-hmm. around the world, as you mentioned culture was banned and we had to pass on knowledge through words and yep. song. It's it's a funny thing. I, I sought out a lot of Celticness and the Gaelic language. Um but my brother and sister don't they don't speak Irish. Uh, at all, not a like you know, yes, no, hello. Uh, so it's a weird thing for us in Ireland because it is it is growing more the 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 sort of want and need to get back to what it means to be Irish and and, and that history. Uh, and traditions it's important and and Ireland has gotten so so global uh that it's it's great like 
you know, you see you see kids in Ireland now with, uh, we'll say for example, Nigerian heritage, and they're and they're speaking Irish because they're learning it in school, and it's really cool to see. Really cool to see. Let's go into your your voice. We're we're talking about language, and um, your voice is incredibly powerful and raw and moving. How did you discover you could sing like that? When? How old were you? Well, here's the funny thing. I uh, I didn't know I could sing at all. I really didn't. And uh, when I was in school, like, you know, you're in school and you put on those plays as like or concerts, like Christmas concerties or whatever it is. I was always uh, uh, the one tapped on the shoulder and asked not to sing. And we have an acting part for you. Don't worry about it. And I was like, oh, God, I must be a really, really bad singer. Uh, if out of, you know, 40 children, the only thing you can hear is my badness. So, so, uh, but I was much more sports orientated. I, I absolutely just, uh, I'm still today like a crazy, crazy sports fan. And uh, what ended up happening was uh, I got to, to play sport at a very high level and then I blew my knee. And uh, I was, this is still before I was 16. So I, I had I had a life path that I was going to keep playing sport as long as possible and then go into something like sports uh, teaching or medicine or something like that, physio, something like that. And then, uh, yeah, I blew my knee and that all changed. And then the secondary thing that happened was my parents moved to the Middle East and I was 15 and I had to go with them. My brother and sister were older, so they stayed. And I just, I I couldn't believe what was happening to me. I had the f- full freedom of, of being a scallywag in Ireland to being quite confined in the Middle East uh, when we first got there. And I was, you know, typical petulant child. And I was like, oh, well, I'm not talking to you people that brought me here kind of thing. You know, my parent pained the ass to my parents. And then they, they just had enough and they came home one day with a guitar. I don't know where they got the idea, but God bless mm. them for doing it. And uh, they said, like, take your teenage angst out on this. And I taught myself how to play. And uh, and then I started, I just started singing along and, and writing almost almost immediately um, songs that will never, ever come to light. Because <laughs> 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 they're just so chronically bad. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, just, oh, God. Oh, baby, so tell me you love me. Like, yeah, yeah, God, just terrible, <laughs> terrible stuff. But, you know, genius. You were, you, you were a genius oh, back God. then, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, I started, I started playing and my dad found out through friends from his work that there was a, a folk club uh, that would meet once a month in, we were living in Abu Dhabi at the time. And, uh, and sure enough, it was the Alain Palace, the Ali Valley. And uh, it was a Tuesday night and off we went down there and I was just, it was before my 16th birthday. And I remember I, I sang an original one. Oh my God, just tragic, tragic, tragic stuff. But I also did uh, Slip Sliding Away by Paul Simon and stuff. And uh, I don't know what happened. It was just, I got up on stage and it was like, there was maybe three people in the audience or something, I don't know. But it was whatever it was a bit. And I'd never had a buzz like that in my entire life. Not from, you know, scoring goals or winning winning trophies or it, it was just, it was there was nothing like it. And I immediately, immediately knew what I wanted to do with my life much to my parents frustration but that was it I just waited I promised them I'd go to go to college and I did that and uh, and then I was off I was off uh, traveling with music and I've done it ever since that's incredible Mm. and I imagine at that time being that age the internal shift for you, moving from Ireland to the Middle East would have just maybe opened up this inner world that you didn't Absolutely. actually realise. Absolutely. Well, um, because of my dad's job, uh, uh, he was in the airline business. He wasn't a pilot. He was in engineering. But 
he used to be contracted uh, to other airlines to, to basically turn the airline around back into a profitable one. So uh, when I was six, we moved to Trinidad. So, you know, between six and eight. So that that was first where I saw how powerful music was because we were there for two carnivals. And you could just see how it took over the entire place and, and, and how it was just, it was the beats, everything was just so incredible, so incredible. But when you're a kid, uh, you don't know, you don't really know that you're in a different country and you don't really know that these people aren't the same as you until you're told that <laughs> badly later on. But uh, so, uh, like, I saw the drums and, and that, that to me was exactly the same as the drums in Ireland, the Baron, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and I didn't see the difference. And then the steel drum, it was just like, to me, was 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 like, oh, it's just funny because they probably don't have goats here and they don't make the drums out of goats, right? So, <laughs> which is far more ethically, it sounds, but... <laughs> um, so yeah, when I got to the Middle East, it was it was incredible for me. I still had that kind of mindset as I did uh, uh, when I was a kid because they in in the Middle Eastern music they were using uh, beats that were very similar to Irish, like the like the slip jig in an Irish. It's not a standard, you know, four uh, uh, four timing. It, there's that like. You know, and we have that we have that in Arabic music and in Irish music, and plus they were playing drums that were made of goats, so it was like goatskin. So, I mean, for me, like I just saw very very early how how the thread of music just just is 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 really one vein, and and it is that you know that old cliche the universal language, but really really it is it is, mm. you know. So so it was really. It was really incredible for me to be able to, to be exposed to that so early and and not see a difference. Like, that's Irish music, that's, you know, uh, Thai music, that's... It was just all music to me. You taught yourself <laughs> guitar. How, how did that... Go. Were I, you just I, listening yeah. and, and playing things back? Yeah, pretty much. And then I, I remember the guitar, the guitar my parents bought me, or my mum, I should say. My mum bought it for me. Um, but big up dad too. Uh, the, it came with, I, the book looked like the size of a matchbox, the old matchbox. Thing. And uh, it had, it had like, you know, 12 basic chords, you know, and, and this is how you hold the plectrum and this is, you know, and it was a tiny, tiny book and I, and it, but it didn't say what finger went where. It was just, you know, dot here, dot there. Dot. So as a result, I, I, for the first long while playing guitar, people couldn't figure out why I was making myself so uncomfortable with, because I just thought, oh, well, the first finger, that has to go there. And, that, and it was absolutely wrong. It was a much easier way of doing it, but that's what I was so used to because I was just like, oh, I dot, it was like, Twister, but like not doing Twister properly. It was like just, you know, cover, cover, cover at the strings. And then, so yeah, people were just like laughing the first time. I was like, oh, why are you playing guitar like that? I'm like, well, that's how I was taught because I taught myself. <laughs> <laughs> and has it changed? I mean, have you, did you change then? Or um, you... A little bit. Yeah, a little mm-hmm. bit. Just, just as, uh, as, as the stuff got more, more complex, I needed to, you know, you, you need to shift, shift chords quicker and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, I settled into what it's actually supposed to look like. Mm. But um, but one thing I never got rid of was uh, I loved the fact that if you bet the living snot out of a guitar, it could also sound like 
a, a drum as well as 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 a stringed instrument. So I still today I I, I kill guitars like I kill them. Yeah, yeah. Um, because for me they're a work tool. A piece of art needs to be on the wall, but that, but that's my work tool. So that's what I love doing. And I bend like I bend the guitar. I don't use I don't use any effects. Uh, I make the guitar do what I want to do. So there's lots of like bending the neck and all that. And it just makes people kind of cringe. But I love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> and what did your parents think? I mean, obviously they, they intuited that the, the guitar would be good for you. Mm. There's a great story about um, your parents having a party and, and hearing you. Oh, God. Yeah. Where did you find that? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, no. This is embarrassing. So, again, uh, getting back to teenage angst and being annoyed with my parents for bringing me out to the Middle East, they are having a get-together. Um, my mum came in and knocked on the door and asked me to turn down turn down the, the, the music because uh, she thought I was playing uh, CDs too loud. And it actually ended up being me. Uh, and it was me she was listening or the party was listening to and then when she found that out she was like oh my god oh my god come here come here, come here. so uh, I ended up going out and entertaining the party and it was from then on that's when like my dad went and found the folk club and so they've, they've really helped me like every single step of the way but yeah it was it was so funny how how like will you turn that down oh my god come out here and play for us <laughs> it was like instantaneous yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, you went you went traveling mm-hmm. after um, you found this love for music. Mm-hmm. What does travel mean to you? What draws you to the road? Because it seems yeah. like you enjoy yeah, being I'm, out yeah. there. I'm a definitely definitely a road warrior, but but uh, I love immersing myself completely into wherever I am. So so you know, like I I moved to Sweden, and within a year. I could speak Swedish because, and for no other reason other than that was seemed like a cool thing to do. I, I love the the complete and subtle differences of each country you go to, you know. And, and my first stop is usually like a, a museum, and then the National Library. That's the first stop I, I go to because I wanna I, I wanna know what what art were, was on the walls. I wanna know what military stuff went on. I wanna know what persecution went on and and then once you once you kind of know that then you start to see the local people a little mm. differently in a different light you know you have to really immerse yourself in into like regular everyday life you know don't, don't go to the restaurants just cuz the guidebook says go find someone who cooks out of their home or or you know do, do stay in someone's house rather than a hotel you know that kind of stuff it's it's wicked it's wicked that's that's what travel means to me you're now based in Canada, yeah. But it's obviously somewhere that um, that you fell in love with mm. pretty quickly. What what was that like, and what is what does Canada mean to you? Uh, Canada is is just an incredible place. It's to me really it it reminds me. It's like the the well, literally is the polar opposite of of Australia. But uh, um, it's a massive country like Australia. Uh, it's it's it has a tiny population for the landmass. Commonwealth as well, uh, incredibly, incredibly uh, evil and embarrassing to the indigenous people. Uh, it has that history as well, uh, very similar. It has the history of, uh, you know, removing the kids and, and and those horrible schools, if you can even call them that. Uh, so it's very similar uh, down the line with that. And I find the people, um, the people to be similar in, uh, at their core as well, be, be, because they are, uh, they are newcomers to that land. It's very, for me, being an outsider on both places, it, it's very, it's very similar. Um, 
the land is is very sacred there. It's mm-hmm. very sacred, and you can feel that. And when you go on, when you go on to uh, uh, to sacred land, you can really you can really feel it. Unless mm-hmm. you're you know you're walking around with your head up your, you know. But uh, so there's so many like there's more there's more uh, natural waterways in Canada than the rest of the world c- combined. Mm-hmm. Um, the mountains are amazing. There's like rainforest. There's you know, you have the Maritimes that just looks like, you know, just the wilds of any European cliff sort of ranges. And it's it's incredible. But really, it's about and I find the, the, the main similarity is the people. Um, I'm not sure if, if Aussies who, who have gone to Canada would, would see the same thing. But certainly, certainly uh, from from an outsider's point of view, I, I find because it's in it's in the land. Right. It's in the it's in the nature of the land. What's it happened is. to it, you know, so, yeah. yeah. I lived there for a while and okay. I, I totally agree. It was in Alberta and I had the same um, experience. So wow. I'm one Aussie that gets that. Right on. Yeah. Um, what, what is the landscape like on Prince Edward Island and has that land influenced your, your art? The reason why I picked Prince Edward Island um, was it's, it's like this tiny Ireland. It really is like a tiny Ireland. And most of the other yeah, thing uh, where you were there was the Irish and the French were, were on that I- island, uh, uh, um, Prince Ile de Edouard, uh, Prince Edward Island. And then the the lovely British came along and they expelled the French and they sent them all down to down to Louisiana, which then they became the Cajuns. Um, but uh, when I got to Prince Edward Island, the language, the people looked Irish the language was very. One one point that still makes me one word that still makes me laugh is there's no such word in the English language as slippy. It's slippery. <laughs> you know it's slippery. There's no such thing as slippy. But people in Ireland all say slippy, and it was the first time I heard it outside of Ireland. Was Prince Edward Island? Oh, careful on the ice! It's slippy. I was like, yes, yeah. I'm home. I'm home. I'm home. <laughs> and and they're known for uh, uh, for potatoes because it's a small island, and there's only 170. Oh, no, sorry, 143, 44,000 people on the in the whole province. Due to the lovely winter in Canada, it gets so cold gets so cold because there's no mountain to stop any of the wind. It just whoosh, just goes across. Uh, and and we've had, like in 2015, uh, in the winter of 2015, we had, you know, 18, 19 feet of snow. You know, it's wow. that's like getting out your top window of your house to that's, walk your dog. You that's know? A- so- <laughs> <laughs> it is cold. You've played so many festivals yep. um, in the US and here and mm-hmm. um, obviously Canada. How does this movement and connecting with different people influence your sound and your songwriting? I think I think if you're a good if you're a good artist or you admit to being a good artist, you uh, you um, you will always look to to you know your peers are above. There's that there's that old cliche that you never play tennis with someone that you're better than because you'll never get any better. So um, I always love looking at people that are that have a career that is, is far above mine uh, uh, right now. Um, and I'll just, it, it's not that I'll try and be them. It's, it's, uh, it's just watching, constantly watching their, it's just a class. They're, they're, 
they're a class above above uh, uh, what what other people are doing, and so it's still like I I opened for uh, I opened for Rod Stewart uh, in Canada, and this guy is like the same age as my dad. He's like seventy seventy two, and he's like all class and this consummate performer, and he's running around backstage like a teenager, and he plays for two hours straight, you know, fourteen suit changes, but the thing that got me was he when he was on stage. He he was like he was talking to the to the last person that was standing in the field because they couldn't afford the other tickets or whatever it was, or they couldn't get up close. That's how I try and emulate them. Is is not just to be a singer songwriter. Um, there's plenty of them. Uh, I want to be I want to be an entertainer. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's it is about the content of song. It's about how I deliver that that uh, that song. It's also about there is a space in between songs when stuff should happen. And that's when I love talking to the crowd. Um, and I'll react to anything like, you know, hecklers. Like, God, I love hecklers. I love me a good heckler. <laughs> I just, oh, it's just brilliant. I love it. Um, but, you know, because that's 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 a live thing, right? And and, and it, it'll never be recreated the same way. And that's what I love about it. Uh, and the other thing is I love I love being solo. I love being solo on, on massive stages, you know, hundreds of thousands of people mm-hmm. and just being one person on stage because if something goes wrong, there is no net. Mm-hmm. It's just you. Uh, and I love that thrill. It's, it's like exciting and it teeters kind of on, oh, my God, this is going to not go well or it's going <laughs> to go awesome. Or, you know, so like... Well, we were talking earlier about the about the Blues Fest, right? And and like 10 minutes pre-show, I'm like poking out my head from behind the curtain. So that was your first set at, yeah, at Blues Fest? Yeah, and it was, it was like the, the, the big stage, right? The it main was, stage, yeah. 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 And, uh, and I was like, you know, John, my manager, is backstage. I'm like, John, John, there's nobody here. God damn it, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? This is crazy. Why did I do this? And he's like, oh, just calm down. Hey, you know, typical Ozzy, just calm down. <laughs> She'll be right. And I was oh, just freaked out, freaked out, freaked out. And then I walk on stage and it's packed. It's packed. It's absolutely packed. And, you know, so like I love, I love that rawness, you know, mm-hmm. and, I, and I love that I still freak out about gigs. You know, I've done, I've done, I can't, don't have a figure of how many gigs I've done throughout my career, but I still take every single one like it's going to be the best one ever. I saw you at Blues Fest and I I was walking past a tent and your voice just, whoa. Oh, well, and I was you. like, I was there for the whole rest of the set mm-hmm. and I almost cried. I think you were telling you were telling stories mm-hmm. and it was just your delivery was incredibly powerful. Thank so you. so thank you. And um mm-hmm. you've you've toured a lot here now. Yep. There was one experience at Woodford that people were oh. singing your lyrics back to you. Can you tell us about that? You know, I've been doing this for, for a while and I've played some of the most amazing festivals and venues around the world. You like to think that you're never jaded. You know, you don't get jaded about it. And that's really important to me because I don't want to do it if I'm jaded uh, by it. So then you have you have incredible circumstances happen like what happened down in Woodford so it was the first time I played Woodford um it was the first time I'd really done Australia and uh so we're at a one of the big stages and and I had said okay I'm going to teach you the song and um and when we get to the chorus I'll you know I'll teach you the song it's gonna be great it's gonna be great when we're all sing along blah 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 and then I started playing the guitar and then the first words I started singing, the entire crowd sang it back to me. 
And it, it hit me so, it hit me so hard. Like, look, I, I make fun of people who cry during performances. There's no crying in baseball. Stop it. You know how I do that. <laughs> uh, and then, but it was so profound, uh, the the energy and the the real true sense of these people were were so into what was happening and so welcoming to me. And, uh, you know, they just didn't have to do that. And everybody in that tent just started singing and I lost it. I absolutely lost it. It was so incredibly, incredibly powerful that that I just burst into tears. I, and I'm like, yeah, I can't explain why. Uh, well, I, I tried. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it was just incredibly powerful thing. And to have, to have a space in this day and age where there is 100% positive energy being directed straight at you is a very is a very proud and, and and powerful thing and I think it all it all just it it hit me so I I started crying on stage yeah it was ridiculous <laughs> you know you'd love you'd love those moments to happen a lot mm-hmm. you know because they're they're they stay with you forever but maybe that's why they're not supposed to happen all the time is is because that is something I will never ever ever forget mm-hmm. uh it was it was incredible just incredibly powerful and it was a very proud moment and and you know Woodford is all about that Mm -hmm. you know those exceptional moments and you know your your song content has a lot to do with with people you know hearing you for the first time and then Mm -hmm. following you around Mm -hmm. the country um it is very personal so let's talk about how you do write your songs Mm -hmm. It obviously features people that you meet along your travels Mm -hmm. and that you've crossed paths with over the years Mm -hmm. Is that intentional or that's just... It's it's a funny one because sometimes sometimes the songs write themselves. Uh, you know, you think, oh, wait, that's that's not true. That You just don't want to, you know, go into why you wrote the song. But I have I have a song um, called 55 Years and uh, and that song is, is, it's a true story. It's about a, a, a man that I met, uh, not like that, uh, obviously. <laughs> obviously you can tell by my voice. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> But it was it was about an elderly guy that I met right after a festival, uh, after the the last stage had finished. It was still at the festival, and uh, just a chance meeting. And and I said I just turned to him and I said, "Oh, are you enjoying your festival?" And he said, "Yeah." He says the first time I've been out in four months, and I was like, "Oh, really?" He you know said something stupid like, "Oh, you need to get out more." And then he said uh, he said he was a widower. He was four months a widower, and this was the first time he was venturing out and. And then he, he was talking about how he had been married for 55 years. And in the 55 years he'd been married, not one single night had he ever spent apart from his wife. That freaked me right out. I mean, you just don't get that anymore. Like. Mm. And, uh, and then later on that night, I remember thinking, I was getting into bed. And it, it hit me like really, really like like a kick in, kick from a mule. It hit me like what must it have been like for him? The story came flooding back and what must it have been like for him to try and get into bed uh, the first night after she passed, after 55 years of marriage of sleeping with the same woman every single night, like they never spent a night apart. Um, and then something compelled me just to sit down, pick up the guitar and the song just rolled out. I don't know... Okay, well, a couple of things. I'm not. I'm not a seven year old man. 
Uh, I haven't been with the same person for 55 years. I don't know uh, uh, what it means to, to lose someone after spending three quarters of your life with them. Uh, these are things that I can't, I, no concept of. Um, and yet that song came out and it came out almost in one go because I've had many people come up and go, you're right on the money there. I watched mum and dad or, or, oh, I lost my wife or I lost my husband. You're on the money. There's no reason why I should have known how to write that song, right? Uh, and then there's others that you just compelled to write. Like I have a song uh, called Let Them In and it's, uh, um, it's about many things, but I sang it to some politicians and one in particular because I had a problem with the amount of Syrian refugees they were letting into the country, uh, which was not enough. You know, I don't shy shy away from difficult songs and difficult uh, difficult subjects because, you know, I wouldn't be true to, to, to myself or my personality if I just skirted around the problem. Like, for me, you know, I've, I've songs about mental health, you know, um, because... Just because you can't see the scar doesn't mean the scar is not there, and we're not taking it seriously enough, and we're not we're not talking to you know young men, we're not talking enough or helping transgendered people who are like the number one suicide uh, uh, um, demographic, um, you know. There's all these things, and 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 you know, sometimes when you're just uh, when you're just thinking, oh, I just want to make money and I just want to do shows, then you don't do those type of songs. But for me, it's not it's not about that. It's about it's about leaving a legacy as well uh, and a body of work that that when I'm on my deathbed, I'll be proud of, you know. Um, and so for for me anyway, so far, so good. I don't I don't think I've 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 done myself any any shame so far, but plenty of time. <laughs> <laughs> good balance. You know, some artists say that they feel like they're a channel. Would you say that that's what happens when you, you know, are you religious? Do you, how do you think about things in that way? Um, that's a funny one for me because being Catholic, uh, Irish, you know, um, you grow up within the Catholic religion. Um, I was baptised, had my first Holy Communion and confirmed and, and, yeah, that was great. And do I go to church? No. There's God all through my songs, but it's the word God or the word Jesus. It's not a, it's not the actual, the actual sentiment of it. You know, it's just like people go, oh my God, you know, and, and atheists in Ireland, oh my God. Like it's just, it's just, that's, that's how we talk in Ireland. Um, so that's, that's funny. But uh, I, I think for me, especially look, what's, what's happening across, uh, across the border from where I live um. You know, you, you have the rise of of people who are saying they're doing things in the name of God and and uh, and, and to to preserve the uh, the the right of, of of the Christian religion and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But they don't see that the rhetoric that they're using is exactly what they were saying they were afraid of after 9-11, right? It was doing doing stuff in the name of God, right? Mm -hmm. You were just doing it in the name of Allah or, you know, so. For me, religion is always so scary and so, like, it's just, it's pathetic to me how just because someone on a Sunday tells you that this is the way it is, then that you feel that you can impose that on anybody else. That's It's quite scary and it's... Mm. Um, but in Ireland, we don't talk about religion or politics. <laughs> no, that's, that's a lie. That's not a lie. <laughs>
still on this topic, can mm-hmm. we talk about your song Jesus, yeah, which um, yeah. um, highlights the tension between religion yeah. and the LGBTI uh, community? For me, it was an important song to, to, to write, but the way I framed the song had to, had to be done correctly so it wasn't people who, who do have faith don't go, oh, my God, she's, she's, bagging, she's bagging my religion. And, and people who, who are of the uh, uh, LGBTQ plus uh, community aren't going, oh, God, she's singing about God and blah, blah, blah. Um, and that he's not for us and he won't let us in. So, so it had to be framed correctly, uh, which is why you have that standard kind of beat of like, you know, it's, it it lends itself to uh, hit the road, Jack, and uh, passenger, um, stray cat strut. It's that right. So it had to be framed in that. So immediately, before people know what's happening, people are kind of like getting into it and jamming along to it. And then there had to be comedy in it, mm-hmm. right? So it's basically about me walking down the road and meeting Jesus. And then I'm going, I get down on my knees and I'm like, Jesus, I love your work. Really love your work. Don't particularly like that I'm getting old. So can you help me out here? And, you know, I'll do whatever. And Jesus goes, oh, I'd love to help you, but I'm not doing that anymore. But listen, next time I'm talking to my dad, I'll put in a word for you. And off he walks down the road. right? <laughs> and uh, but then uh, but then it was like saying, okay, well, Jesus thinks I'm okay. And, and so the, the next verse after that is me explaining, you know, who I am. And it's like, I'm a drinking woman and uh, I'm partial to a woman or two, but that doesn't mean I deserve to burn in hell. So, uh, yeah, but then then the last the last verse is is also dealing with, with a very real, real thing, which is, it's okay for two women or two men to 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 love each other, you know, mm-hmm. and and it is a real it is a real love, and uh, and before before religion came along, no one had a problem with that love, you know. You have you had uh, you also had two spirited people, the indigenous Canadians uh, and North Americans. They had two spirited people, which was like you were half woman, half half man, and that was okay, and there was nothing wrong with that. And if you saw you know, back in the day, pre-religion, if you if you saw if you had a, a a woman who had a baby and and her husband was killed in a hunt or in a fight or something like that, then an unmarried woman would would move in with her and that was okay and, and there was no problem. It was just this advent of religion and shame and 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 completely ridiculous uh, backward morals, uh, you know, which 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 led to this whole, you know, living. Not all of them, obviously, but then this incredibly large, you know, cloud being put over put over people because those people who were supposed to protect us were the ones who were living the completely immoral, disgusting, and evil lives, right? So, so it's it's just it's it's ironic for me, but um, but with Jesus, like I've had people come up and go, no, no, that's that's blasphemy. That's absolute blasphemy. And then I, I, I said, well, I get that. I get that. And I'm totally okay with that. And if you're willing to have just a 30-second conversation with me, I want to talk to you about it. Mm. Because I don't want to go, oh, yeah, whatever, mate. No, I want to talk to those people. And, and what I usually end up saying is uh, that when I lived in, in Gothenburg in Sweden, I had the archbishop um, come to me through, my, through a, a priest friend of mine, Father Johan, and he asked me to sing the Jesus song on the altar at the cathedral. So if it's good enough 
for an archbishop of an entire country, it should be good enough for your pious ass. It really, really should. Or you're doing it wrong. Do you know what I mean? So, (laughs) so, uh, yeah. And also I love my my big favourite thing with that song and, and, and something I'm most, most proud of is I get... I get like really young LGBTQ plus people coming up to me like 14, 15 and they're like, wow, like, thank you. Thank you for singing, singing out and singing proud and singing loud. And, and you know, that that kind of thing is 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 really worth it to me. On that note, do you mm-hmm. feel like folk music has a responsibility to to do that? And do you feel because that's having such an impact and you see that personally? Yeah. People people tell you. Yeah, look, this, I love that you asked that question because that is, I do panels about this in North America. Uh, folk music is, at its essence, it's music of the people. Um, it was also in, you know, the whole folk revival in the, in the 50s, 60s um, was about, you know, it was the anti-war, it was the, in, in, in you know, in, in the US and Canada, it was uh, against the Vietnam War. It was this, it was Dylan. It was, and that's great. Um, but from what I see, and from like, I am in that genre and I'm very proudly in that genre, but all I see is middle age to above white men ruling the business. Uh, and for me, there's a very, there's a very real and true lack of diversity within, within the genre. Um, and again, I'm only speaking to the, to, to, to the North American, uh, audience. Um, but, uh, and, and, and that's a real problem. That's a real problem. It's, it's almost like it's, it's when you do that thing where you, you do that panel on women in business and put seven men on the panel. Like what in good God's name is that about? It happens so much. I mean, yeah, yeah it's just, it's just ridiculous. Mm. And they all feel great about themselves because they all oh, were going forward. Yeah. Seven men talking about that's brilliant. <laughs> and you don't, none of you saw the irony in that at all. No, <laughs> no, not at all. Great. Moving on. Um, so you know, uh, I, I was uh, I was on this uh, I was on this panel. It was a conference um, in the states, and uh, there was one guy there, and he was talking about how he was so proud to have done this uh, this this program reviving uh, the the slave songs. And I talked to him afterwards, and I was like, "Wow, who have you got a who have you got on the program? Like, it's good. This is this is brilliant." And it was a bunch of white people, and I thought, "Why? What?" I was like, "How is that?" How would you even like <laughs> contemplate doing that? Like, why, you know? Uh, and the other thing is, like that that brought me in mind. I did a festival here, um, and I stopped the show halfway through because there was two young fellows with what you would call here Indian headrests on headdress, should I say? And they were milling through the crowd, and I just stopped the show. I just stopped right in the middle of the show. It was at Blues Fest, and mm. I stopped the show, and I said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa!" I was like, "What tribe are you guys from?" I was like, and I was like, no, mate, that's you're appropriating someone else's culture. Get them off. Good on you, right? Mm. And and it was just, you know, it's the same thing. It's this idea that 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 oh, we, well, we sympathise, but it's also we'll 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 drive the show. I mean, that's that's just bullshit. Um, I think folk music is going through something right now, and I'm excited about it, and I just hope that the the movement keeps going in the right in the right uh, direction, but um, folk music—it's like how I started this question. The answer: um, folk music is music of the people. You just got to be really careful that you're talking about all people. 
mm. and that you're giving the opportunity to all people. Um, you know, it's it's like it's like when people ask, like, well, what, why do you need why do you need a pride festival? Why do you need Black Lives Matter when you have All Lives Matter? Um, it's because you don't get it. You don't get it. And this is a time for white people to shut up and listen mm. and give space. Uh, you know, give space for for people to 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 talk, and so we can learn for a change, because everything we've done has has well not everything but you know a lot of it is has been pretty unrighteous and 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 needs to stop right. So, so I think there's a lot of really cool uh, festival directors out there that are that are are putting, uh, you know, folk festivals back back on the map and and doing great things you know like like home ground kind of thing right mm-hmm. so um and it needs to be done and it needs to be done more than ever now because it, there's scary stuff happening in the world mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of people who who are being backed into a corner and, and and think that the that their way is the right way and and it's it's that's never good it's mm-hmm. never worked before and it won't work now so yeah so i think yeah it's it's an interesting time and i think we're going in the right direction i just want to keep going that way yeah, yeah, it's a great point to make because there's a lot of movements that with the rise of social media that seem to be trendy and people yeah. like to say, oh, I'm all about that, but I, it, we really need to take action. Oh, absolutely. So this is one of the, you know, the powerful things about music and, mm-hmm. you know, and panels and that kind of thing. Yeah. It's great to discuss, and, um, and but then we need to take action as well. Um, so what is on the cards for you next you've just released your your last album mm-hmm. and i heard you say in another interview that you just got serious a few years ago yeah what what <laughs> do you mean by that how do you get then get serious i mean this is such a natural thing you're a storyteller and obviously yeah. you've shared the stage with you know you opened for melissa etheridge yeah. and rod stewart mm-hmm. and they had an impact on you yeah. how how do you translate um what they do and then into your own art mm-hmm. um f- for me it was about getting serious i was always always serious about my art like always but there comes a time where you're like, okay, you need to get serious about the business of your art, right? So, so my art is still and and will always remain very very serious. But, but I wasn't, you know, I didn't up the game business wise. Um, and and about four or five years ago, I decided that this was it. Now, um, I had to get my stuff together and 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 onward and upward, and that's what I did. What is next for you? So next is um, recording the new album and then I start uh, touring Western Canada in February. Mm-hmm. Who does that? That is like minus 50, lots of snow. I should be coming back to Australia. You should, absolutely. <laughs> but you say that with a twinkle in your eyes. This is what you're meant to be doing. It, it gives you your joy. and Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And look, I'm coming back to Australia, so that makes me really happy. And uh, I'll be coming back with a new album and uh, lots of lots of new goodies to drop uh, over the next 12 months. So uh, Australia for me, I just wanted to, wanted to, I don't think I touched on it before, but Australia for me is, is such a, an incredible opportunity. Like the minute I got in here, the crowds were just amazing. Like just, there was no, there was no build. There was no like years of building it. It was just 
instant uh, for me and I'm just so grateful for for all the people who who got on board and I just really wanted to wanted to give them a shout out I don't know what I've done but I, if I knew that I would bottle it and sell it <laughs> just being yourself and we love it so such a pleasure to chat with you thank you thanks, so much thanks, and looking forward to seeing you performing outstanding again. <laughs> it's a long story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House This season features guests from Homeground Festival and it was hosted by me, Emily Nicol. It's produced and edited by Susie Anderson. Our theme music is by Hrishikesh Hiraway and our executive producer is Edwina Throsby. For more Sydney Opera House podcasts, visit sydneyoperahouse.com forward slash ideas or subscribe to It's a Long Story wherever you get your podcasts. Yawo, until next time.